Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the first Sunday in Lent is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 32 verses 1 through 7. can be found on page 869 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Heavenly Father, these are your words. Your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. First thing, if any of you right now has a Bible camp campfire song stuck in your head, means you lived a rich and thriving life uh, growing up in youth groups everywhere. So Liz... Uh, I know, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I thought about making the entire congregation sing that round at the beginning of the sermon, but I opted not to, simply because I didn't want to lead it. So uh, if you don't know what song I'm talking about, I'll sing it to you after church uh, as you head out. Uh, the other thing that made me think about this was hide and seek. Uh, the, the whole message is based on, on this phrase, you are my hiding place. And, and I remember a time when I was playing hide-and-seek with my cousins at my house in Grand Forks. I was probably around seven or eight years old, and I know this might be hard to believe for some of you, but I was intensely competitive as a child. Uh, and, and my cousins were exactly the same. We were, everything was a competition, everything needed to be measured, and playing hide-and-seek was no different. So. Uh, when it was my turn to be one of the hiders and one of my cousins was the seeker, I purposed to hide in the best spot I could think of in my house. And I had been thinking about this for a while. I had been planning this out. And so I went to the deepest, darkest corner I could find, which in my house was in the basement behind the storage shelves in our utility room. And, and what I had done in preparation for this, and yes, I planned ahead and prepared, is I moved all of the things onto the storage shelves to the very front of the shelf, thus creating just enough space at the back of the shelf 
for a seven to eight year old boy. And so I contorted and bent myself into place, not on the ground, but on the first shelf above the ground in the utility room. And as I heard, we counted to 100. That was standard operating procedure in the 80s. I know children today don't have the attention span that we once did, so 100 is kind of extreme, but we counted to 100. This bought me plenty of time. And so as I heard 100, and ready or not, here I come, I, I waited and I smiled to myself because I knew I had nailed this hiding place. And, and, and they came in, and, and for whatever reason, my cousin had a flashlight. Okay? He didn't turn on the light to the utility room. He had a flashlight with him, and, and this is where I won the game. Because I, I, I probably would have been discovered if the, flash, if the lights had been turned on. But, but he started looking in the utility room with a flashlight. And I saw the light flash around me, and he didn't see me, so he, he left the room, and, and I heard him find all of the other kids who were playing the game. And then I heard all of the kids looking for me. And, and, and this gave me great delight, because I had one. And I decided I was going to wait it out as long as possible. So I heard him look for me, and they all came into the utility room, and again they didn't turn on the light. And, and again they passed me over, and I heard him searching faintly, and then I didn't hear him searching at all anymore. And so well over an hour later, after I had probably dozed off to sleep, I got up, climbed off the shelf, and found my cousins playing in my backyard. At which point, my cousins, very delighted, started teasing me were you still hiding? We gave up on looking for you long time ago. That's what I want to think about today. Were you still hiding? For us this morning, as we think about Psalm 32, really becomes the question, why are you hiding? And that's the point of this psalm. In Psalm 32, a psalm that we quote at least once a month in our communion service, David confesses his sin. And at the end of this confession, David confesses his faith. And he says to God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. But if we've confessed our sin... And if we've been forgiven, and if we recognize that God is our refuge, why are we still hiding? What are we hiding from? And why is this deliverance so powerful that it necessitates shouting? We'll discover all that as we turn our eyes back to Psalm 32 this morning. And the first thing David teaches us this morning is the thoroughness of our sin. In the first two verses of Psalm 32, David uses four different words for sin. Let's see if you can pick them out. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit the Lord counts no deceit. So the four words are transgression and sin and iniquity and deceit. 
There, there are two truths buried in this usage that David makes in his confession. First, the first three descriptions of sin, transgression and sin and iniquity. And these three terms, when used together, teach us a theological reality. In the Hebrew mind and in the Hebrew liturgical confession, these three terms are used together to communicate to us the totality of of our sin, or even better than the totality, the pervasiveness of our sin. As far as our sin is concerned, when God looks at us, it is everywhere. Now, perhaps what we would might want to tie to this passage is to think about Hebrews 12, when the writer of Hebrews writes about the sin that so easily ensnares us. And sin ensnares us because it's everywhere. And, and as I was writing the message and preparing for the message, a, a thought kept popping back up into my head, and I think here is as good of a place as any to teach about it. Uh, from time to time, and more regularly in the past couple of years, I have been asked as a pastor why I don't spend more time condemning specific sins. Uh, it, it happened uh, first off when I was accused uh, by a friend uh, of not condemning, uh, it's really hard to describe this, how many in here remember the whole Covington Catholic situation at the March for Life three, four years ago, all right? Uh, for those of you who are on social media, what happened with the Covington Catholic situation is like five seconds after this young high school student was posted where it looked like he was sneering at a Native American protester, five seconds after this happened, everyone in the whole world fell all over themselves on social media to condemn this kid for being a jerk, and he must have been a jerk because he was wearing a mega hat, and he was at a pro-life demonstration, and he just looked smug. And so I had a friend reach out to me, and this friend told me that if I did not condemn the actions of this kid, I was participating in his smugness. Well, after the initial five seconds after this happened, it found out that the kid was the one being taunted, that, that this individual, this protester at the March for Life was getting all up in his face, and he was the one taunting this high school freshman, sophomore, whatever he was. But, but, but throughout the years, there have been certain sins that individuals want me to condemn very loudly. Uh, it, it's, it's sometimes been uh, the racism either on the far right or the far left of the political spectrum or, or, or some other very hip and chic sin that society is participating in condemning. But here's the problem with it. Something like racism or something like being smug in your, in your faith or whatever, that is sin. It's obvious. I, I don't know any sincere Christians who wouldn't call racism sin. Not a single one. But, but what we're often doing when, when we go out of our way to condemn specific sins is we give ourselves tunnel vision so that we get focused on a certain sin rather than on the breadth or the depth of our sin. 
or of sin in general. And this is the idea that David is communicating here in Psalm 32. We can't just focus on specific sins because our sin is so pervasive and so thorough and so complete that if we make a pet sin our hobby, we're going to be doing it at the expense of all of our other sin and especially at the totality of our sin. We're going to return to that in a moment. But, but, but think about this. David is communicating to us of the totality of of our sin. Those are the first three terms. But uh, the fourth term really completes the picture because David adds to these three terms the idea of deceit. And the idea David is communicating here in Psalm 32 is that we are often in denial about our sin. We will often lie about the totality and pervasiveness of our sin, about the depth and the breadth and even the significance of our sin. Sometimes we lie about our sin and our sinfulness to others, but mostly we lie about our sin and our sinfulness to ourselves. We've so thoroughly convinced ourselves that we are good people that we can't possibly conceive ourselves in any other terminology. I'm a good person. Well, what does that mean? You're a sinner. No, but I'm trying hard. Yes, you are trying hard, but you fail. You've admitted that already in this worship service. Well, I know, but as long as the good outweighs the bad, I'll be okay. Does any of that sound familiar to you when you think about your own sin and your own sinfulness? That's why, for King David, there's no room for any sin toleration in his confession. David knows. David, the king of Israel, knows that he's a sinner. David admits here that he's thoroughly a sinner. And what David teaches us is there's no escaping the reality of sin. It permeates everything we do and every single part of us. I think what's most, what's most interesting about thinking about this here in Psalm 32 is that Psalm 32 doesn't give us any context. That's really, really important here. If you have your Bible open, you can note some of the headings on the Psalms. And if you have your Bible open, what would be really handy is if you look two Psalms into the future and look at Psalm 34. The heading of Psalm 34 says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. We know exactly the situation that David wrote Psalm 34 in. In fact, we can take Psalm 34, we could clip it out of our Bible, and we could paste it next to the story in First and Second Samuel where that happened, and we get a lot more insight about what David was going through when he pretended to be crazy. Right? Or you can go to Psalm 51, and we know David wrote Psalm 51 as a confession about his sin with Bathsheba. 
We know that. David tells us about that. Now, now what's interesting is that David's sin with Bathsheba is a really big deal. He not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba conceived a child as a part of the process, but as a way to get out of it, David had her husband killed. Now, if David wrote this first part of Psalm 32 in Psalm 51 instead, we would totally get it. That's a big sin. We could understand and even, even empathize with the guilt David was feeling. But we don't get that in Psalm 32. There's no context whatsoever. What that teaches us, and, and I hesitate to use these words, but I think they'll communicate the idea anyway, is that as David communicates the totality and pervasiveness of his sin, it's just normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday sin. This isn't like, big deal, I might get arrested for this sin. This is just sin. And this is what and how David is confessing the thoroughness of his sin. And then he pivots and he piles on himself because he moves to the physicality of his guilt. David's guilt about his sin was threatening to overwhelm him. And so the next words that he writes in Psalm 32, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Now, right now, the heat of summer sounds like a pretty good deal for us. Especially maybe after these last five days, right? But but when you think about the heat of summer, if any of you has ever been in the south in August, people who used to live in Louisiana know exactly what I'm talking about right now, that's the sort of energy-sapping, soul-sucking heat that David is talking about. It's a heat where you don't want to move, you don't got any energy, you don't got any of that. This is the, the, the words he's using. And the important thing to note here is that these are visceral words. They're words intended to communicate an experience. An experience that is not too hard for any of us to imagine. Now, anyone who's ever been under the conviction of sin instantly knows what David is talking about. You instantly been there. You understand that guilt, that guilt. And the guilt of our sin is a gift that God has given us. It's part of his design. It, guilt is why in scripture God spends so much time warning us about lack of guilt. Several places in the Bible, maybe perhaps most prominently before the Exodus, uh, when, when the, the plagues are hitting Egypt, God talks about the danger of hardening your heart. If we ignore our sin, and if we numb the pain of our guilt, we could end up hardening our heart. We end up desensitizing ourselves 
to these feelings. We continue then to sin more and more and more and allow our sin to carry us away from the Holy Spirit. And what we learn in Romans chapter 1 is that God most frequently punishes sin with more sin. So when we sin... And when we're convicted of that sin, and then when we refuse to repent, it becomes easier to sin again. And as we sin with ease, it becomes easier to not repent, and so on, and so on, and so on. The other way God condemns this, or at least God highlights this in Scripture, is through the nature of leprosy. Now, this is a less obvious thing, but, but uh, maybe when you were a teenager like me, you wondered why Jesus spent so much time healing leprosy. I, I, I wanted to think about this in, in our modern day age. Anyone in here ever known someone who's had actual leprosy? Like, like in, yeah, I figured two or three at the most. And, and, and we're wondering, honestly, if you think about it, I wondered as a kid, why wasn't Jesus healing cancer more often? Or, or pneumonia? Or, or broken legs? You know, we, we, we've talked kind of tongue-in-cheek multiple times in the last year about how common it was in Israel to fall into a pit. You know, those warnings are all over Scripture. But leprosy takes up most of Jesus' time as he heals. And the reason this happens in Scripture is that the nature of leprosy is so very important when we think about our sin. In leprosy, it, leprosy is all about nerve damage and desensitizing your skin. And you get to the point as a leprous person where you're unable to tell if you're causing yourself harm. That a leprous person, when you have actual leprosy, is able to hold his hand over a flame and not feel his skin get charred. This is a deep, meaningful picture of our sin and our sinfulness. That we are so thoroughly sinful that we're unable to see the effect of sin on our lives. We're unable to recognize when we put ourselves in danger of being burned. And so God has designed sin to cause guilt. Or, if that gets a little bit too close to God causing sin, God has given us the gift of guilt so that we would not continue in sin. If you read John 16, the major work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convict us of sin. And this guilt, this conviction comes with the same visceral, physical reaction to sin that David was experiencing. If you've ever felt that shortness of breath or that sickening knot in your stomach or the nervousness that comes from being made aware of your sin, that's what David is confessing here. And the point is, you know there's something wrong, and you know that God knows there's something wrong, and so God afflicts us. He tortures and torments us so that we would acknowledge that wrong, we would confess our sin, and ask for mercy. And this is what gets to the highlight of this psalm. 
Forgiveness in God is thorough and is readily available. Sin is the answer to both of David's, or not sin, forgiveness, excuse me, is the answer to both of David's plights in Psalm 32. Verse 5 of Psalm 32 is a sweet balm for those who are feeling guilty and suffering under the weight and reality of their sin. Simple words. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt or the iniquity of my sin. You pick up on David's confession here? Did you notice that David uses the same three words here as he used in his confession of sin? Transgression and sin and iniquity are all here in David's David's plea for forgiveness. And David's confession of faith in that forgiveness is just as thorough as his confession of sin. Our sin is wholly encompassing. It is thorough, and it is perverse, and it is pervasive. But God's forgiveness is more thorough. God's forgiveness is more encompassing. No sin, not one, when confessed, can escape God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And just as David's guilt and his sin were readily apparent, and just as your sin is readily apparent, God's forgiveness is readily available. It's freely available. It's right there. God does not and will not ever withhold any of his grace and mercy from you when you repent. Now, I want you to note here really quickly that guilt isn't the problem. Sin is. There are some in the Christian church who muddle the gospel in this way. And they talk about God's grace and mercy only addressing our guilt. But guilt is simply the byproduct of sin. Sin is the problem. And so when David confesses and when we confess our sin, yes, our guilt is removed, but our guilt is removed only because the sin itself is forgiven. God doesn't ever want you to feel better about your sin. God wants to take your sin and forgive your sin. And this is what brings us to the final two verses of our psalm this morning. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In light of God's grace, in light of the thoroughness of God's forgiveness, why would we still need to hide? What are we hiding from? Are we hiding from our sin? We can't because God's taken our sin and he's counted it as Christ's sin. We don't need to run and hide from our sin. It's been forgiven. Could we be hiding from the devil? Now, that's a possibility. Satan is a powerful foe, but in him being a powerful foe, he's a defeated foe. Christ has conquered Satan for us. We need not fear him. 
So what are we hiding from? Why would David still be seeking refuge? The answer, I believe, is buried in verse 6. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. David returns back to the idea of his sin overwhelming him. He turns back to the reality of drowning in guilt and shame. And for David, he seeks refuge in God. He seeks refuge in God as his hiding place because of his own conscience. And I think that's the big deal here in Psalm 32. Because part of the nature of our sin, part of the thoroughness of our sin, is that we don't believe. We often refuse to believe what God actually says about our sin in the gospel. Our consciences repeatedly, as sinners, threaten to overwhelm us because we can't conceive of our sin being eliminated unless we're the ones who do something about it. Think about it. How often have you felt guilty of something you've done way back in your past? How often has something you've already confessed something you've already been forgiven for, how often does it come back over and over and over again? This happens to me regularly, probably more often than I care to admit. And the thing that causes me to smirk or more regularly shake my head at myself in frustration, that it's often the tiniest, stupidest little things that I've done where I remember randomly some sideways remark I made in a conversation 25 years ago, some dumb thing that I've said, and the guilt washes over me. And I realize again, and maybe anew, what an awful, horrible person I am. And if that goes unchecked, I can spiral into a spiritual depression where I wallow in pity and I wonder how it is that God could ever forgive me. That's where I want to tie up this one last loose end. As your pastor, I don't often focus on specific sins unless the word tells me to. And it's because of this reality that our tiniest little sins are good enough to plague us with guilt and to give us fear over damnation. But God has set himself up to be a refuge and to be our hiding place. Not only because it's in his nature to forgive our sins, he wants us to know him as gracious and merciful, but because he's the only one who has accomplished our forgiveness. Our forgiveness in Jesus is an absolute objective reality. It does not change, nor can it change, because it's a part of history. When we run to God, when we confess our sins, when we plead for mercy, we always find Jesus. We find his pierced hands and feet. We find his wounded side. We find his blood, and we find his cross and empty tomb. And we find it all in God's word, where we find shouts of deliverance. 
Now this, in reality, indirectly, is military language used to describe a victory. But I have no hesitation here to apply our shouts of deliverance to the promises of the gospel and scripture. Because we cry out with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. When our guilty consciences threaten to overwhelm us, when we are weighed down by the reality of our sin, by the height and depth and breadth of our sin, God is our hiding place. God's word is our hiding place. And throughout God's word, what we find is Jesus. We find Jesus for us. We find Jesus in our place. We find Jesus forgiving us. We find the gospel promises that our guilt cannot overwhelm us. Our guilt and our sin and our shame does not win Because in Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. They have been washed clean, and they belong to Jesus. And what stands in the place of our sin is Jesus, and his blood, and his righteousness, which God gives us freely. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.